Thank you. That's very comprehensive. One thing I would want you to speak to. So we have, uh, we're encouraging, you know, students of diverse backgrounds to go into medical school. But, you know, even on this podcast, we've seen OBGYNs already in the profession, okay, uh, encountering a lot of barriers and problems in big institutions. Some of them forced to early retirement simply because at times they're alone in their fight, there's no support. And yet, because they're the minority physicians, they're treating more risk-congruent patients that look like them who also have the higher morbidity and mortality issues. So we have minority physicians treating sicker patients, but with less support from the system and making them make so many decisions that leads to uh, a high attrition rate of the people already in the system and less providers to take care of this kind of patients. Do you see that? Oh, definitely. And I will tell you that um, one thing that COVID-19 has magnified are the health inequities that we see, right, in the United States of America. And as a result of it, many health institutions have increased their efforts for diversity and equity and inclusion. But one thing that I want to highlight is that when we're doing that, it has to be that all are involved, that there can't be something which we like to term a minority tax, which means that that singular minority clinician or several minority clinicians are the ones that are doing all of the work. We need to make sure that people of different races, of different ethnicities, as well as different genders are working collectively together to improve how they're caring for these patients, improve also how they're treating the clinicians that are caring for these patients. As you mentioned, a lot of uh, clinicians of color are feeling burnout just from having to take the burden of these sicker patients, but also to be the person within that institution to educate those that are not of the same background as the patient population. So I think what a lot of the hospital systems and the medical centers and society, and from a societal perspective, what has to happen is we have to take a pause and realize that irrespective of your race, your ethnicity, your gender, this is an important topic and we should all be working collectively together to improve these outcomes by learning one from our doctors that are, do come from those populations, but more importantly, not putting all of the stress and onus on them once you do learn, right? So working together as a team. And that's how improving the pipeline is going to, to help this. It's also how starting these conversations in medical school probably even before medical school, like college, pre-med classes, et cetera, is going to really change the structure. I think another important thing is understanding that we in medicine tend not to look at historical lessons. I, I think that we have to understand the historical context of where a lot of the disparities first existed with um, large impactful episodes and events that occurred throughout our lifetime, several even decades ago. And we should learn that again early on, such as in college, but also like pre-med classes, but more definitely medical school. And a lot of times we're not doing that, but I am I am very, I do feel very positive with the fact that we as uh, cardiovascular societies at least are changing the curriculum and the structure when it comes to these patient populations. So we are trying to make sure that our medical students and our residents and our interns, et cetera, 
understand the plight that a lot of these patient populations went through. So they're more empathetic to the experiences that they're going through now. Um, you know, you know, just going to your bio, Dr. Rachel Bond, um, you are a board certified attending cardiologist. You have devoted your career to the treatment of heart disease through early detection, education, and prevention. You are the system director of Women's Heart Health at Dignity Health in Arizona. You are the co-chair of the Women in Cardiology Committee, as well as the chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for the Arizona chapter of the American College of Cardiology. You serve on the Women in Cardiology Section Leadership Council for the national chapter of the American College of Cardiology. And, um, you know, most recently you were, you know, appointed co-chair on the Women and Children Committee for the Association of Black Cardiologists. You hold a faculty position as assistant professor of internal medicine at Creighton University School of Medicine. And um, you earned a Bachelor of Science degree from the seven-year accredited medical program at the Sophie Davis School of Biomedical Education, where you graduated summa cum laude and earned your medical doctorate from the NYU School of Medicine. You completed your training in internal medicine at the NYU School of Medicine and in cardiovascular disease at Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine at North Shore University Hospital and Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New York. You are the author of several review papers referencing maternal, maternal health, sex and gender differences and cardiovascular conditions that predominantly affect women, along with opinion pieces aimed at addressing health equity, reducing health disparities and promoting the professional development of women and minorities in the health science profession. You have a passion for advocacy of education and mentorship, mentorship, and you have advised as an expert source through media and news outlets. Uh, your clinical interests include prevention, maternal health, cardio-oncology, and lipid disorders. Um, your research interests also include the heart-mind connection, cardio-rheumatology, and gender disparities in vulvar heart disease. And, you know, I have medical students and pre-medical students and residents that work with me. How, you know, as a woman, as a minority woman, if you were going to encourage somebody that wants to maybe follow a similar career path and I mean, just do all the things you have done, which is just amazing, amazing. I, I, I could, you know, it takes a mouthful to read everything. How would you advise them to start to persist? And, you know, just what would you tell them about this path? Definitely. So you, you just have to do it. Okay. That's, that's the easiest thing. What I will say is that you want to set a timeline and you want to more importantly find mentors as well as sponsors who are going to help 
elevate you, allow you to have a seat at the table earlier on. One thing that I will say that I heard throughout my career is that your time will come, your time will come, your time will come. And I wasn't happy with that. I wanted the time to be now. So I made sure that I found others that were willing to give me that opportunity, but I worked extremely hard for it. I will say that I'm the first physician in my family, which I'm extremely proud of, the first medical doctor in my family. But I had a lot of support from my family. There's a lot of sacrifices that had come with it. But once I got my feet wet in the field of medicine, I knew exactly what my path I wanted to be for me actually would look like. I knew early on that I wanted to do cardiology. I knew early on that I wanted to focus on prevention. And I knew early on that I really wanted to impact women as well as minorities in particular. Why? Because I looked at all the data and I saw that that was the population that was having rising rates of heart disease. And I wanted to make an impact. I knew that I couldn't do that as much just at a local level if I was just a cardiologist at a healthcare center or in private practice that I needed to make sure that I was on the board and I was at the table for all those national societies to get the conversation around the importance of diversifying our field, to get the conversation on making sure that we're caring for these very vulnerable patient populations. So you want to, first and foremost, for anyone out there thinking about doing a similar career path or even a career in medicine in particular, first thing is you wanna find that mentor mentor who's willing to walk you through what they went through, maybe give you advice on what to avoid, how to best suit yourself for what you want to actually go into and what field you want to go into. But there's such an importance in making sure you have a diverse group of mentors and sponsors. So even though I'm a Black female, my group is extraordinarily diverse. Yes, it's important that you have Black women who are helping guide you, but it's also important that you have Uh, members of other races who are willing and as well as other genders who are willing to take you on under their wing and help you reach the levels that you, you deserve to be at. I think what we have to realize is that irrespective of our background, everyone deserves a seat at the table, especially if you have all the tools and the ability to, to make sound change. And I think a lot of that was just me being extremely aggressive very early on, willing to put in all the work and making sure I found all the right people who are willing to take me under their wing. So that's the first and most important thing, getting a mentor, getting a sponsor. I actually myself have so many mentees around the United States, many in Georgia actually, and several of course in my state of Arizona, but even previous to Arizona, I was in New York and I still work with so many students, residents, and, you know, fellows alike, because it's important that you have a large raft, as we call it, right? Just a raft of otters, they like to say, that are kind of pushing you along that canal and making sure you reach the the final finish line. Um, I would be more than happy to add more mentees into my raft, um, but I will say that it's important that you first identify what your goals are and don't listen to people that say you're you're too young to know what your goals are you take you know have some time and get your feet wet and then you'll think about it later on in life you want to know those goals early on so that way you have a mission and your vision is clear straight ahead and you know exactly what you want to do with the rest of your life 
And, you know, are, are there character uh, traits? Yeah, I worked with you in New York. You know, I come from a private practice perspective and we were working for this big organization, the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And you just humbly helped me. You know, I had to step into a different aspect of what I'm used to. I'm very comfortable with the private practice world. You have been a national spokesperson for a while. So what are the attributes, the individual attributes? You know, for you, I learned, you know, you're just a very knowledgeable person, but then you are a humble person and you are a nice person. What attributes would you give or do you tell your mentees to have? I know you talked about, you know, be, be, being a go-getter, just, you know, work hard. Be, be aggressive, you know, what other attributes would you advise them to look at? Absolutely. So you want to be true to yourself. Um, however, you also want to make sure that you're treating others the way you would want to be treated. And that is something that you don't learn in medical school. That just comes with how you were raised. And as I mentioned, I have a, at a very, I was very fortunate to have a very supportive family structure that taught me that I have to provide respect to everyone. I will say that there is such value in having collaborative care between private practitioners, those in academia, those in healthcare centers, because there really shouldn't be a separation. Um, what I love about where I currently am in Arizona is that we have actually a mixture of everything and we all work so nicely together. We all are part of our cardiovascular department. We have leadership roles within our health institution and many of them are in private practice. So I will say that it's it, that's a whole other podcast we can address uh, private practice versus academia versus health care centers. But the most important thing is that regardless of where you practice, where you were raised, where you grew up, we want to encourage that we're treating everybody with the respect that you would want to be treated with. Um, I love meeting new, new um, clinicians across the United States. And I definitely love if I could help in any which way to get you know, your foot into the door easier than maybe it was for me to do that too. So it comes a second nature when there's somebody who may not feel as comfortable as an example, with a particular situation for me to just go in and help out. It's just something that is within me, but it's because that's how I was raised. So my most important, I think, advice would be to be true to your core, how you were raised, how you grew up, and never forget that. Because sometimes when we go through the stresses of medicine, we can change and we don't want that. We want to be true to ourselves because our patients know that we are real they'll be more likely to come back to us. They'll know that we understand. Because one, one thing, I, I sat on a panel recently and I really loved what one of the panelists mentioned was that patients look for clinical competency, but they come back for cultural competency and empathy. And I, I completely agree with that. You want to be true to yourself and you want to make sure that your colleagues see that trueness because they're more likely to help you and want to collaborate with you in the future. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for that event in New York. And we all wore red and we had, had a big bash afterwards. It was so much fun, you know. But I'm going to go back to one of the other pre-medical students' um, questions. Um, uh, we have Mr. Elijah Hawkins. Um, 
And, um, you know, he's starting medical school in the fall. One of the questions that he was curious about was that we know that nuclear cardiology for diagnosing heart disease is deemed safe. But with small amounts of radiation being used, are there any risks to the woman uh, or to the women who desire to be pregnant? Or would you still recommend this type of imaging to further diagnose and address the heart disease of the patient so they can be their best selves going into pregnancy? That's one of the questions that he he asked. So I would first start by saying that we encourage the limitation of any form of radiation when the female is pregnant. One thing that we also encourage is for women of reproductive years, right? So those that are still currently menstruating, that we try to avoid as much radiation as possible. One thing I will also say is that we've come a long way in cardiology on advances on ways to better diagnose heart disease for women, particularly women of reproductive age. So what are the few examples we can do? A stress test provides a lot of value. So who would we think about ordering a stress test on? Somebody who is coming to you with chest pain that you believe could be heart related, especially if they have risk factors. And if after doing what's called an electrocardiogram, which is just a basic ECG where we look at the tracings and the electricity of the heart, we see that that electrocardiogram is normal. We can do a plain treadmill stress test where we're able to see what their heart rate is, when we exert them, their blood pressure is. And if we see any changes on that electrocardiogram, if that electrocardiogram at baseline shows an abnormality, then in addition to doing a treadmill, we may want to include imaging. The options for imaging that we have include an echocardiogram, which is a sonogram. And a lot of times in my women of reproductive age, especially if this is a visit as an example, pre-fertility treatment, I may consider doing that. There's no radiation. It's an ultrasound of the heart, very similar to what we do when we do an ultrasound of the baby. And it allows us to see how well that heart is squeezing and relaxing. Now, in certain situations, we may say, well, we know that the quality and the accuracy, more importantly, of the echocardiogram is a little bit lower than the accuracy of other tests we have out there, such as a nuclear stress test, or even now, such as a CAT scan of the heart. And in situations like that, if women are of reproductive age, not pregnant, but of reproductive age, I would probably err on the side of saying my preference would be a CAT scan over nuclear imaging. Why? Because one, it has a lower amount of radiation, but two, it provides us a lot of key information because what that CAT scan allows us to see is, is there evidence of plaque in the arteries of the heart? And a lot of times when we have women that are young of reproductive age, we may not identify plaque until it's hardened over on a simple x-ray as an example. So what the CAT scan allows us to see is that soft plaque because we're using contrast, which is a dye agent. It's allowing the arteries of the heart to light up. And we're able to see if the pain they're feeling is because of a blockage or a stenosis of some sort. But more importantly, we're also able to see if there's any plaque buildup. What I wanna emphasize again is that the only time we would consider doing any of these cardiovascular testing, such as stress test, a nuclear test, or CAT scan in a pregnant female 
is if our suspicion was extraordinarily high and the the benefits of that radiation outweighed the risks that that radiation can have to the growing baby. So it's a conversation that I, as a cardiologist, would be having with the obstetrician and possibly the high-risk obstetrician to really determine, is it beneficial for that patient to undergo it? Because for the most part, we try to avoid any form of radiation during pregnancy as possible. And more importantly, we also try to avoid during reproductive years too much radiation because that can definitely impact you down the road. And the other question um, that was asked was um, about this vascular interpretation. And I think you kind of talked about it. Um, I want you to talk about it a little bit more. Um, this is something you are a specialist in. It's a non-invasive, uh, I guess, vascular laboratory practice to, you know, you know, make a, a, a cardiovascular diagnosis. Um, how often in your practice, for instance, do pregnant women present for uh, vascular interpretation? And um, are there any common results in the population of pregnant women that you conclude from your vascular interpretation exams? Can you just enlighten us in lay terms what that all entails? Yeah. So again, what I will say is that if we have a female who's currently pregnant or had had previous pregnancy and it was complicated by uh, gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, preeclampsia, premature labor, those patients need to be in the hands of a cardiologist. Why? So when they're not pregnant, we can talk about these testing. A lot of these testing are not beneficial and won't change the scope of what's going on during that pregnancy, because a lot of these testing may encompass a little bit of radiation. It also may encompass additional blood tests, such as a cholesterol panel, something that we don't typically check during pregnancy because we know the hormonal changes of pregnancy may alter the results to be extremely elevated. So as a result, what we are doing is working very nicely with obstetricians to say, if we have patients that have any one of those risk factors, and I will reiterate them again, gestational diabetes, hypertension, preeclampsia, premature labor, of course, any complications with their pregnancy, something called peripartum cardiomyopathy, where you have a weakening of the heart muscle, those patients need to be in the hands of a cardiologist. And several months after the delivery, the cardiologist will now take on the road of, of, of performing these vascular tests, these blood tests, these imaging tests to really give that particular patient a better understanding of what their heart health looks like now, but more importantly, in the future. So all of this is not typically done during pregnancy. It's done after the delivery. And so the cardiologist is just to get the pregnant woman ready in the system for after the baby is born, she's had a good outcome or even manage any complications that might develop with the heart during pregnancy, but get them ready for a proper and complete evaluation by a specialist like you in the postpartum period. Exactly. Exactly. Because a lot of what happens during our, again, pregnancy can dictate our future heart risk where we see women who do not have close follow-through, do not have anyone evaluating their blood pressure, their cholesterol, their vascular health, in five to 10 years having heart attacks and strokes. And we wanna, we wanna avoid that because these are very, very young women. We wanna avoid that. 
you know, this has been so great. And so before we close, I have, um, you know, I want you to just talk about this Life Simple 7 again, um, you know, and just if you were to give a, a, a woman, especially a minority woman, something uh, of advice from a cardiologist about her cardiovascular health, what is that simple truth you would want her to get from this podcast? Yeah, so so Life Simple 7, again, are tools that the American Heart Association created. I will also emphasize that the Association of Black Cardiologists has our own seven simple steps to heart health. And what's a little different about the American Heart Associations versus the Association of Black Cardiologists is that they share the same components, which include knowing your blood pressure, knowing your blood sugar, knowing your cholesterol, not smoking and drinking in excess and exercising and making sure that you're getting all of these uh, particular numbers checked by going to the doctor's visit on an annual, if not a more regular basis. But what the Association of Black Cardiologists adds to their seven is that spiritual component focusing on stress and understanding that sometimes, again, if we're not religious, but maybe we're more spiritual or maybe we're both, utilizing a moment of just taking a pause, thinking about your inner self and understanding that meditation helps, that going to your faith-based community helps, and really having a supportive community outside of your family is another way to lower your risk for cardiovascular disease. And that's what I would leave your audience with is to say that stress is something that we undervalue, unfortunately, but it's something that we know can gradually impact our life. It not only affects our heart health, but it leads to really increases of any chronic condition, COVID-19 included, cancers as an example. So identifying the stress in our life and trying to figure out um, better ways that we can cope with it. Good ways to cope with it is really the key. One way to do that is to make sure that if you're experiencing it, you're going to a clinician who you trust and a clinician who's willing to listen to you and giving you sound advice on what to do. I highly encourage that your viewers and your listeners go for their well women visit at least annually, making sure that the doctor's checking all of their blood work, their cholesterol, their blood sugar, their blood pressure, but they're also giving them the results as the patient so they can take notes, understand what is normal, what's abnormal, because a lot of times there's a lot going on during that visit and things may go over your head. And we wanna make sure that you understand well, if my blood pressure is a little elevated, that can impact you if we don't make changes to your lifestyle, because in another five to 10 years, you may have high blood pressure. And then we're talking about medications. So there's a lot that you can do in that well women visit. And the most important thing is asking, what are the ideal numbers for me? And what do my numbers look like? So you know what changes you need to make for yourself. Wow. And, you know, just on a personal note, what's your dog's name? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're a dog lover. I, I am a big about your dog. Oh goodness, I am a big dog lover. So I have a Yorkshire Terrier. Her name is Sasha Bella Bond. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she has a middle first, middle, and last name, and um, she's actually very excited for February coming up too. I tend to put her in a lot of red, so red bows, red dresses, so. 
If, uh, if for those on social media, you can follow me at Dr. Rachel M as in Marie Bond, and you'll see a whole bunch of photos of her for the month of February. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bond, I am so grateful. Thank you so much just for the knowledge that you've imparted. Thank you for the time. I know you are extremely busy and I'm just so uh, grateful to you for just coming and just helping women, you know, all over the world. We have uh, audiences in Africa and in Australia. So we're just grateful because, and this is true for any woman anywhere. So, uh, you know, a lot of the things you talked about to preventing heart disease. So I just want to thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you for coming to onto Coco Pods podcast and just for all the knowledge that you shared with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to doing another one very soon. <laughs> Thank you.